You're listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Good morning. My name is Don. I'm a pastor here at the Axis, and it's my joy this morning to, to attempt to expound Psalm 110. So as, as you just heard and, and want to follow along, we will be headed there. Um, sometimes I say attempt because... Uh, bless her heart, I, I changed stuff on Ashley even, even this morning. Uh, as, as more and more thoughts come, come flooding in, it is a psalm of incredible wit and depth. And so we will uh, do our best to, to see what it has to say to us today. I am, as I said, a pastor here. I've been through, I guess, the second year of PLC, and it was a joy to do that and begin to serve you right now, at least in, in prayer. Many of you I, I pray for. And then uh, hope in the future to become a little, at least more active as, as something called school has delayed me uh, mightily with, with a lot of work. So that ends this week. So I'm excited about that. Um, I guess when we, when we look at the Psalms, which we've been doing the last six weeks, there have been um, an overarching theme that, that Jason really came up with, which was these are songs of hope. And whether or not we understand the full impact of that hopes, because sometimes the psalmist seems to terminate, I'm thinking of Psalm 88, just in the midst of what seems to be great despair. Uh, we, we begin, as Jason says, to look at them as poetry, so they are different than, than most of our other texts that we study. And yet they're broken apart in, in five major groups. You, you see them as psalms of thanksgiving. You have psalms of praise. You have wisdom songs. You have laments. And you have royal psalms that really enthrone the king. I will say that Psalm 110 today is messianic. We have that as a subcategory. Uh, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a moment. But we also have the psalms really, I think, as, as everyone who's preached on them has said, they are God's word to man, and yet they are to be echoed back to God as covering our own thoughts. And so I remember Jason said, you know, I always thought it was just a uh, kind of a kid's book, I think he said, or something with not, not a lot of theology. But as you get into the Psalms, they're overwhelming. Uh, the, the thoughts that the psalmist pen have great depths and truths about who God is and how we relate to him. And therefore, again, I've always looked at a psalm as coming from the Spirit, given to men to write, but all of a sudden just echoed back. And that's the way uh, the Jewish nation would have, would have taken them too. They, they used the psalms in their liturgy. They sung them and chanted them. They have blocks of them, such as 113 to 118, called the Hillel, that they used at, at, at feast, in particular Passover. And so taking blocks and seeing how they are arranged... Uh, is very, very moving. If you look at the Psalm of Ascents, Psalm 120 through 134, each one will, will have a superscription above the first verse, Psalm of Ascent. They, they move us. Uh, they, they push us, really, what scholars believe, to, to festivals. So you can only imagine as you're singing 120 through 134 and you're on your way to Jerusalem to take part in a festival, you have these hordes of people gathering because the closer and closer you got to Jerusalem, the more the roads would become crowded, but you're all singing to God from God's word, the Psalms. Uh, that's those same grouping of, of 120 to 134 may also have been used in 
religious ceremonies as what separated the court of Israel from the court of the women uh, that everyone would come into and then pass through for their sacrifice were 15 steps. And so there are 15 Psalms of Ascent going up to the court of Israel where your sacrifice was taken. So again, we see that canonically a lot of them are linked. I truly believe that 109, 110, and 111 are linked together. Uh, 109 finds the psalmist pleading for deliverance. And suddenly in 111, there's great praise for having been rescued and saved. And you wonder, how did that happen? Psalm 110 answers the question of, of who might have provided that rescue. We have psalms that, that, as Psalm 1, act as a preface for the whole book, and Jason expounded that, where we see two types of people on the earth. Those who the psalmist says, you know, meditate on the Word of God day and night, and on it, it is his delight. That, that word meditate is to really, um, it's almost like chew on it day and night. And, and the word that we see is law. Uh, those who meditate on the law, law is really instruction. So, so it's Torah, but it, it, it's, it's meant to be almost like parent-child in a loving relationship. So again, it's relational. To be in that type of relationship with God Almighty and to be blessed by that uh, comes with, as he said, blessed is the man who, and it is who studies these, these psalms. Uh, we, we had that from Jason, and then he mentioned Luke 24, 44, where Jesus, resurrected, meets some guys on the road to Emmaus and says, this thing that, that these things I have said to you while I was with you, that what is written in, and it gives three things, law, prophets, and writings, might or must have been fulfilled. And so Jesus basically says that the Old Testament speaks of him. And that's what we're doing with the psalm study. We're, we're beginning to see deeper and deeper into, into who Christ is based on how he was thought of through God's word. And those three particular branches there in Luke 24, 44, make up the Hebrew Bible. So that where Jason, you know, I remember said that our, our Psalms are easy to find. They're kind of right in the middle of our Bible. Well, in a Hebrew Bible, there is Torah, the first five books of law. And then you have prophets, which he makes mention of. And those cover a large span of the text. And then at the very end is the writings. And the Psalm would have been in the writings. It's, it's the Ketavim, those things that are written. And it in, starts with Psalms and it ends with Chronicles. So their Bible's a little bit different than ours, but it, the encompassing thought is Christ inside that Old Testament text, and now he was revealing it to someone on the road to Emmaus. We begin to see that then in week two. As I know, Josh opened Psalm 91 for us with at least three promises of God. He, he also told us that the Psalms cover a full range of emotions that there's nothing we probably have ever experienced that's not somewhere in the Psalms themselves. Psalm 91 is wonderful in those promises that, that, that promise us provision, that God preserves us, and that he perseveres with us. Those, those were the three things I remember that were hit, driven hard. And, and, and I understood that one verse that, that God speaks in, I think it's verse 14, where he says, because he loved me, I will rescue him. There is, again, that relationship of the psalmist and God on high, which is an amazing thing. We then, uh, I know uh, Brooks opened for us Psalm 27. He, he prefaced that with saying that the psalms are a wrecking ball to thin religion. And I thought more about that this week, that boy, 
you know, you start reading into the Psalms and all your thin, shallow thoughts kind of go away because they plumb the depths of who we are. And then, of course, in relation to God, I mean, the contrary that, that I begin to think is Psalm 16, we sometimes sing about, I have no good apart from you. That's Psalm 16. And yet, Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and there's nowhere we can stand on the face of the earth that God's not there. So we have these range of emotions given in those psalms, and, and, and certainly Brooks brought that out. And Brooks also then said, you know, in that psalm, there's always hope. He gave us that hope in waiting from Psalm 27. Last week, uh, Derek exposed, uh, I think, and expounded he was in the what's called hallelujah section toward the end of the Psalms. And hallelujah is praise to Yahweh. And I'm sorry, they're, they're, they're looking at me like I have got my mic wrong. Is that better? Okay, sorry. And he exposed that Psalm 147 gives us at least three reasons to praise God. But he also said that those Psalms span a thousand years of writing. And if you think about that, Psalm 90 is written by Moses... So definitely that, that predates that 1400, 1500 era in there. And then there are also really some that are post-exilic, which means they happen after the exile to Babylon, which is in the 500s. So that thousand-year period, these things are being written and gathered. So much so that when they are gathered, they are fashioned in five books, the Psalms. Actually, there's five books broken apart. Uh, and if you look at that, you can always tell when you're changing a book, if it doesn't say that in your text, uh, such as it goes from 1 to 42, the first book, there'll always be a doxology, a praise of God. There's a shift in the theme of what's going on in the psalm where all of a sudden it'll just stop and it'll praise God in a doxology. And so we find 110 in the fifth book. Um, 106 is the end of book 4, and you'll have a doxology. But as I say, now we, we ramp up with this thought of, possible deliverer that we see in Psalm 110 flanked by 109 and 111. We read the text and I want to tell you that uh, you'll see a superscription or is that, that words that are written above the first verse that tells you who wrote the psalm. A psalm of David. Needless to say scholars debate who writes everything in the text. This is one I believe cannot be debated and you'll see this verse come on the screen later. Because uh, in the first century, Jesus will quote that David wrote this song, and David will, I mean, Jesus will quote it as written by David under the influence of the Spirit. So it is a psalm of David, and I want you to keep that in mind because we have to remember how David became king. David became king, and this gives great context to our psalm, in really 2 Samuel 7. David had. had followed a king named Saul whose basically kingdom was taken away for what he began to do. Uh, he began to, in one particular act, he stepped into the role of the priest and in the days of the Levitical priesthood that we see in the Old Testament, that was separate from the powers of the king. And that, that happens at least twice in the Old Testament, Uzziah does the same thing later and, and goes into the temple to present a prayer and incense, and he is struck with leprosy. And so the king was not to overstep his bounds and, and go into a Levitical mode. And that cost Saul also his kingdom. When David then ascends the throne in 2 Samuel 7, 
He has promised an eternal kingdom. In other words, someone from your line, someone from your lineage will always be on the throne. And we say the throne of David. So if, if we understand that contextually David has this thought that my descendants will always sit on the throne, we begin to see that first, that the very first verse is extremely puzzling. And so imagine yourself, you're David, and you're watching David pen this, and David writes the first line. The Lord says to my Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. Derek last week told us that that, that uppercase L-O-R-D, the first word here, the Lord, in your Bibles most times they're all caps, is Yahweh, God Almighty. The Lord Almighty who revealed himself in Exodus as the great I am, the one who has always been and the one who will be, immutable, unchangeable, God Almighty. And when we begin to understand then that, that what David is pinning is he sees some or he overhears divine speech. And the beauty of Psalm 110 is it's broken by divine speech in the first verse and the fourth verse. In this first verse, the Lord said to my Lord, that second Lord is Adonai, given due to someone in great respect, but it's also seen at least in four books of the Old Testament as an angelic being or the angel of the Lord himself. And we hear this and we begin to wonder then, the Lord said to my Lord, who is this one that David is saying is greater than he? And there are four possibilities in the Old Testament. We talked about one, it would be Saul, but Saul had already died. And Saul also was excluded because of what he had done in the role of a priest. So it can't be Saul. It could be King Achish, which was a Philistine king whom David ran to when Saul was pursuing him. However, he's excluded. Because he is a Gentile, he's not of the line of David. Then it could be Solomon. Solomon was David's child. And he would take the throne next. And you have this brief period in Chronicles where there is some co-regency. However, verse 4 definitely will exclude Solomon. So this isn't Solomon that he's speaking of. And therefore, as I told you earlier, I would tell you that this is a messianic psalm. But it's not just a messianic psalm that we see in other places. This 110 is overtly messianic. And what I mean by that? Psalm 22, for instance, is a messianic psalm. The very first verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It occurred to the psalmist, and yet it is projected into the first century, and Jesus speaks it from the cross. So some messianic psalms actually have dual roles. They occur in the time and context of its writing. However, Christ fulfills that. What we have in 110 is overtly messianic. In other words, the psalmist doesn't experience these things that we see here. It speaks of one, then, who will come from David... And this is when I'm scratching my head. Who will come from David after he's gone and yet be elevated above David such that David calls him Lord Adonai. Who could this be? I just got chills because of the very next line that says who this might be. For Yahweh invites this one Adonai to what? Sit at my right hand. 
understanding a position of authority and power that God Almighty, Yahweh, has ushered this, this invitation for whoever David is writing about to literally sit on the throne with him at his right hand. Again, this is then, if we wanted to summarize, who is this one who will come from David and yet be elevated in position above David to a position equal with God. It's an amazing thought that will cascade down generations into the first century and beyond. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We begin to see that this one who is elevated, who is from the line of David and yet elevated in equality to God, will undergo distress, will undergo some sort of enemies, will we'll have a time where conflict exists. We get this big word that we hold on to all the way through the New Testament until there was, there's not going to be this, this person who comes and just immediately things are made right. There will be, there will be a period at least of conflict. And, and verse 1 admits that. Sit here until I make them a footstool for your feet. And what does that look like vividly then in the future? There are ancient Near East artists, and these are from renderings off, off of some stone tablets. And the one on the left you see is Egyptian. That's a king's feet on his enemies, making them a footstool. The one on the right is Assyrian. You can see the Assyrian king again with his enemy under his foot and notice he completely is in control of that subject's existence. I use those words carefully, existence, because we're going to see where this comes up in the New Testament in a minute to bring us great joy. I want you to remember this image. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It admits then that there is going to be conflict, however... That conflict is futile. How do we know? Verse 2 tells us it's going to be futile because the Lord, Yahweh, will stretch forth the strong scepter from Zion. Yahweh speaking again, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. That the authority of the one who's been spoken about, his rule and reign will be accomplished not through a self-reliant spirit, but because of the power of God Almighty to reign in his place through him. Amazing concept that the word here, even for scepter, that it is extended by the Lord Yahweh for the one who's now ruling in the midst of his enemies on earth is used for Moses. It is, it is used of Moses' staff. And if you think what Moses' staff did, at least in three places, it was thrown down once in front of Pharaoh and became a snake and ate the snakes of Pharaoh that the magicians had placed on the ground. In other words, the God who is orchestrating this is more powerful than any God on earth. The second time it's used, at least, that I noted was when he touches the water when they are pinned up against the Red Sea. And who makes a way for deliverance? It is not on self-reliant, the Hebrews. It is because of God's power, because His dominion and His sovereignty that He makes a way of redemption and salvation through the Red Sea. 
The next time you see it, he's, he's fighting the Amalekites. Moses raises his staff, and every time he raises his staff, they have victory. When his hand's lowered, they don't. So it is used in battle. And these three images of, of this king then with, with the Lord, Yahweh, raising this, this scepter means that, that really resistance is futile to this one, though there will be a time of great conflict. The third verse pulls this army together following the one in the day of his power or in the day that, that, that really we become the day of the Lord and the, and the prophets will take that language and use it as, as cataclysmic events will occur as God is, is going to make all things right. And what is happening here when you see the people will volunteer freely, there's a, a free will coming to this one who sits at God's right hand. It, it is a free will offering of themselves. And they are arrayed in holy attire. They, they are in priestly garments, in other words. They are in white linen. If you look into Revelation 19, maybe later, you will see this occurring as an army of God follows the one who is the word, who is Jesus Christ coming back. And they are all arrayed in white. You begin to get these pictures that, that this, this text here, 110, then is projected far into not just our future, but, but even beyond, into eternity. The fourth verse also crushes me with its intensity. Because the Lord Almighty, Yahweh, who cannot lie, who is immutable, who does not change, is so emphatic on this point of what he's going to say that it says here he swears an oath. And the author of Hebrews leans heavy into this text. The author of Hebrews will quote this psalm and this passage eight times. So there's something about your book of Hebrews that he wants you to know this next statement. That the Lord has sworn and he does not change his mind. You, whoever is being spoken to in verse 1 that is sitting at the right hand, will be a priest forever. Now remember I said that some kings had gotten in trouble for stepping their, overstepping their bounds of kingly duty into the priesthood. Saul and Uzziah. Because when the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood was made, it was to be a son of Aaron who served in the temple, made daily sacrifices for the people's sin, who went in and out of the holy place once a year, high priest going into the holy of holies to atone for everything. But then it had to be done over and over again. This, this constant sacrificing for sin. Who is this then? Can you imagine David writing this and suddenly going, Melchizedek, I've got to go get the scroll and begin to read and try to find out what does this mean? Who is this Melchizedek and what order of priest is he? If we venture into Genesis 14, we begin to see who this is. Melchizedek predates the Aaron lineage, the Levitical priesthood. So here God is saying that this one who I've elevated, who is in equal power and authority to me, is also going to be a priest forever. Not temporarily like a Levitical priest who served from age 30 to age 50. And then they stopped. He won't be frail. He won't be fallible. Fallible priests existed from the, almost the very start. If you look at Leviticus 10, there's a grave error that's made in the sacrifice, and two priests die in the Levitical order. 
but not this one. He predates this order and will be forever. So Melchizedek in Genesis 14 is one who appears on the scene very quickly and just as quickly is gone. And the scene and the context looks like this. Abraham, there's been a battle and his nephew Lot has been taken by eastern kings, at least five of them. And there's sort of a global warfare going on. And Abraham rounds up 318 men and goes and pursues that band of kings grabs and defeats the kings and grabs Lot and brings him back. He was living in Sodom at that time. So the king of Sodom comes out and asks Abraham for all the people, saying, here, take the stuff, but I want the hearts of the people. It's a scary moment, very scary moment. Abraham says, I'll have nothing to do with you. I won't even take basically a shoelace off of your shoe. And yet here comes one seemingly out of nowhere who in a book of genealogies has no genealogy, as the author of Hebrews will say, no parents. He just appears. And he appears, he comes from a place called S-A-L-E-M. We would say Salem, but it's from Jerusalem, the city of peace. He is the king there. He is king of peace. And he comes in his name Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. He is both king of peace and king of righteousness, and he is holding two offices there very adequately and with no corruption. He is high priest and king, combining the two offices. And he does so in a manner then that he brings refreshment to Abraham at that moment. And the refreshments he brings are bread and wine. And Abraham is so struck by this one not the king of Sodom, but Melchizedek, that he gives him an offering, a tenth. It's where we begin to see that, that tithe of the spoils. He gives him a tenth of everything. And the priest blesses him. He blesses him in the name of El Elyon, God Almighty, who is Abraham's God also. It's used four times in rapid succession. So who is this Melchizedek? He has no beginning and no end. I'll leave that up to your thoughts. The author of Hebrews will tell you who that is. What we see then in verses six and seven is, or five and six, is a cataclysmic type global warfare, where the one who is sitting at the right hand will finally, in some day, put his enemies under his feet. And he states, the Lord is at your right hand. Now notice, Yahweh has exchanged places. It is Yahweh who fights. And he is now at the right hand of the one who was seated at his right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations and heap up the corpses. He will shatter the chief men all across the earth. This is a scene of great destruction, which the prophets begin to expound on. He will then, this one, this one who is seated at the right hand of God, he will drink from the brook. And you get this picture of the word brook there on the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. The word brook can be a valley. It's used that way, but it's also used for a place, a low place in a valley, the lowest place in a valley. So this one who has been exalted to a place of supremacy, equal with God, is now seen battling on the earth against the enemies who are not in line with the will of God. And what does he do except stoop to the ground 
and drink from the dust of the earth. Utter scene of humility, humbleness, reviving himself and raising his head, raising his head as a sign of victory, complete victory. We get this language of this kind of humility in Philippians 2 for Christ who did not consider being equal with God a thing to be grasped, but gave that up on your and my behalf and came here as a servant, in fact, a slave, so low that he would die on a cross as a criminal, stooping to drink from the dust of the earth. We see this then. And we say, okay, that's, that's contextually, I can see it, and I'm beginning to see images of the Messiah. And we say, how does that translate to the first century? This is 1,000 years before Christ. Solomon will become king. Solomon will build a temple. However, Solomon's reign goes off from the way his father had ruled. So much so that by the time his son takes place, other enemies such as Assyria, have grown in power. And what Rehoboam does is divide the nation through his own evil, through his own oppression. And there's a great civil war that's bloodless, but ten tribes go and become Israel, and two tribes stay and become Judah. And so we begin to have a messianic, really, thread that begins to run through the ages that someone of this caliber will come and either restore our nation back to the Davidic prominence that it had where the nation stretched all the way to the Euphrates River, or a utopian view that this one will come, as we see here, and smite the Gentiles in such a way that all of the earth will be changed. We get it in Isaiah 11, where, where lamb and lion or wolf will lie down together, where a little boy can walk safely with, with bears and wild animals. We get that utopian view. And those two threads will make their way down in Jewish literature until the second temple is removed. And then they become kind of jointed. We begin to see after 516, that, that those two thoughts continue to come down in writings outside of the Bible. But the Jewish people are contemplating this, contemplating things like, who is this one? And they were waiting on him. It hits, it lands firmly in the first century. It lands so firmly in the first century that Jesus will quote this first verse of Psalm 110 twice in the last week of his life. The first time is when he's really berated by all the religious authorities and powers. They ask him if they should pay taxes, and if so, to who? They ask, that's, a, that's a geopolitical question. The Sadducees come and ask him about the resurrection, which they didn't believe in, in themselves, but they ask him a religious question. And then, of course, the Pharisees and scribes come and ask him about the law. What's the greatest commandment? So, again, a religio-moral view that, that these questions of authority are spanned then broadly to try to crush Jesus. And Jesus' response in the midst of that conflict is this from Psalm 110. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked him, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, Well, he's going to be a son of David. He said to them, 
How is it then that David, who speaks in the Spirit, calls him Lord? Psalm 110.1. For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? When I was a new Christian, I used to avoid that part of the text like the plague. And I avoided Psalm 110. I could not put them together without just pouring over that and reading and, and, and contemplating maybe what context that was in and how that went through the ages to get down to this moment. Why? Because if there was any other reason, any other thought of the day by the best and brightest minds... Don't think those three groups who confronted Jesus wouldn't have crushed him with the answer, shaming him and running him from the temple. But their response, they're muted. Psalm 110.1 mutes the best and brightest minds of the day. They know the answer. The Messiah will come from David. But they want their nation restored. They want that restorative view. This is a Messiah who has come to save you from your sins. This is a Messiah equal with God who will lay down His life for you that you might be free from all spiritual defects. One who will rise so that you might rise. Who will take you yourself with Him to glory in heaven. But they didn't want that. They wanted the now. They didn't maybe understand the until. In the verse, Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 110.1. So much so that the next time we see it is during the mock trial by the high priest Caiaphas in Matthew 26. And that scene looks like this. The high priest stood up as they were trying to accuse him of many things and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that all the men, these men, are bringing against you? Jesus remained silent. So the high priest said to him, I charge you under the oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the anointed one. Psalm 110. The Son of God, Jesus replied, you have said so. But I say to you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tears his clothes, saying, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard it. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. He answers the charge, Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? With you have said so, but from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of Almighty God. He, he, he brings together the, the view that Daniel has of, of the Son of Man, fully man but yet fully God, from Psalm 110. In a manner that the high priest tears his clothes. Little did he know that at that moment, that Levitical priesthood was torn. That this eternal priesthood of Melchizedek would run right through the era and into today's context. This is an amazing truth if we, if we just grasp that much of it. And I want to tell you why. Because we have a couple of minutes to put this first century thought into today's practice. And I believe we see that beginning in the book of Acts. As Jesus has been resurrected, he appears to them for 40 days, teaching 
on the kingdom of God, and this happens in Acts 1. In Acts 1, he was, until the day he was taken up by the Holy Spirit, he presented himself alive after his suffering, and by many convincing proofs appeared to them over 40 days, speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them all together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait Wait for what the Father had promised. And so in verse 6, And so when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, now listen to their thoughts, Lord, is this the time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They still have that thread running through there of restoration. Jesus responds, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and throughout all the world. Psalm 110 there takes its precedent, that, that, that word until, that He is going, and we know where He's going, to be seated at the right hand of God the Father, and He will be there. And while He's there, we are to be busy that, that, that what is, occurs in Acts 2 in a speech of Peter is that, that he ascends and pours out the Spirit on the earth, again using Psalm 110.1. He provides for us the, the engine, the fuel that drives witness across the face of the earth. And so I ask you then, just knowing this much and knowing you've been given this gift, hearing these words, you should feel that, that crunch, the knowing that I should be in witness to someone. It could be the person I work with. It could be my person, the closest family member I have. There should be a, an immediate stir, I say a grit that's in the heart that just won't let you rest because we know the rest of this psalm. We know what Jason read in Psalm 1, that, that, that those who don't, those who are against this plan of God have tragic ends. We know that that is then a declaration of purpose and of destination. We know then that there's a duty. This is used again in Mark 16, just before Jesus leaves his ministry in Mark. We hear these words. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed the, His word by signs that accompanied it. You hear that same text, brothers and sisters, in Matthew 28. Jesus says, all authority, all authority, co-equal, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you even to the end of the age. We have this eternal mandate to be moved into mission. And yet by design we are given at least two things that we need or which are fundamental needs. And that is a secure love and really a secure salvation. We don't have time. I don't want to read every passage, but please look in the book of Hebrews the order of Melchizedek becomes so important that you understand that the reason he sat down at the right hand of God the Father is because his work was done. Every other priest, multitudes of priests, scurried around the temple making multitudes of sacrifices. There were no chairs inside the holy place. 
You did not sit down. But Jesus, having atoned for your sin once and for all, sat down at the right hand of God the Father. That is what Hebrews wants you to know so desperately, that you are eternally forgiven. Let that sink in. Everything you've ever done or will do is taken away by this one who God has sworn in the order of Melchizedek, you will be a priest forever. Eight times in the book of Hebrews, so desperately he wants you to know this truth. So desperately does he want you to know that you are loved unconditionally forever. That the Psalm 110.1 appears in Romans 8. What shall we say then? If God is for us, who is against us? I will tell you this. If I just said who's against us, you could begin to make a long list. As Psalm 110 would allow. But Paul won't rest there. He prefaces that question with, If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own sound but delivered him up for us, will he not also freely give us all things? Who then will bring a charge against God's elect? Because God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who will condemn us? You feel like your security, your, your eternal salvation is sometimes in jeopardy? Listen to these words. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather, who was raised and is the right hand of God who intercedes for you. Therefore, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. For I am convinced then that death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. You are eternally forgiven, eternally secure in Christ Jesus. Psalm 110 speaks across the ages and into eternity. And I say, if you are armed with this kind of weaponry that those don't see, this kind of security, can you not be pushed into a certain destination? I close with Colossians 3.1, another place Paul uses Psalm 110. One. One through four of Colossians. Since then, you, brothers and sisters, have been raised with Christ. Picture your baptism. That symbology, being buried with Him and being raised with Him. If then you've been raised with Christ, raised already but not yet seated with Him in heaven, Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Brothers and sisters, set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, returns and appears, you will also appear with Him in glory. Can you be motivated with this kind of tools? 
to be this sort of witness that, that you are constantly setting your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Knowing that your life is hidden, secure with Christ in God. That Christ, as we always hear from this stage, has done all the heavy lifting, all the work. You're walking in it. Knowing that you are alive because He's alive. And as such, your destination, ultimately, glory. The presence of Christ with God Almighty. I close and invite you to the table that Jesus left for us to remember his life, death, burial, and resurrection, the Lord's Supper. We'll have stations and servers on the left and right. I believe we'll have prayer team at the bistro table. If this has stirred your heart in any way, if, you, if you've wondered about your eternal security, if you have any fears about being loved or forgiven, ask. This is the time to pray over it and find somebody to sit with and ponder these deep thoughts that, that a psalm like Psalm 110 moves us, not just through 3,000 years, but through eternity with a high priest who lasts forever. I'll pray for us, and you're invited to come up, or if you're going to serve yourself, there's a station in the back corner here. Please take advantage of prayer or someone else if you need it at there in this time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that speaks and literally cascades through centuries to find us here. That, that your word that doesn't, doesn't stop but moves through eternity and will last for all time. We praise you for the one who is seen in verse 1, being invited to, to sit at your right hand. We praise you that there is this period of grace we live in that's called until. We praise you that, that maybe that last fear we have is death. And that Psalm 110 speaks into that in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul literally using the image we saw on the screen says, the last enemy to be abolished is death. That Christ will even wipe that fear away. We have no need to fear. You have equipped us so very well to live in this time of grace until you return. Father, move us to the destination you would have us, knowing we are headed for glory. Bring us now to this table, hungry to know you better, to experience you, your body that was crushed, your blood that was bled for our sin. We praise you for all of this in the risen Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You are listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.